the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is where we will linger for much of the morning. If you are new with us or would like to communicate with the staff, love to have you fill that out on the city, uh, or there's a card like this floating around uh, one of your seats, so pull that out and um, love to get to know who you are. The word discrepancy, it's a word that means inconsistency. It means there's a difference, there's disagreement. Uh, as a bank teller, uh, I saw a lot of people come in and want to um, ask for help with a discrepancy on their bank statement. Back in the day, people used to use paper, and they would actually go through and use a ledger and see if things matched. And oftentimes, there was some small discrepancy. And some of you are the type that if there's two cents out of place, you'll hunt it down like a basset hound until you find it, because you've got to get it you know, exactly matched. Some of you are like, hey, mas o menos, you know, it's like we're around 200, close, you know, and it's not that you're rolling in the cash, it's just that you don't like that sort of thing. One time as a bank teller, uh, there was a discrepancy of $10,000 for my till at the end of the day. Uh, now, I left work that day, we couldn't find it, we hunted for it for a long time, and um, and I left work that day realizing that if that didn't get found, I was going to lose my job. But I also went, left work knowing that uh, I was going to sleep easy that night because I didn't take the $10,000. Uh, so I got a phone call a couple hours later uh, from my manager saying, oh, we forgot, it's in the vault. You know, someone is at some exchange in a previous teller shift, whatever, we found it. So guess what? You still have your job. Show up to work tomorrow. You know, it's like, thanks, right? So some discrepancies are small and they don't really affect you that much. Some discrepancies are kind of big and they really affect things a whole bunch. Uh, some discrepancies are ongoing and pervasive and, and they're so kind of woven into our lives that it's almost hard to separate out and it feels like how will we ever get this untangled. I want to think for a second just about how we tend to talk about the church. And by we, I mean those who are sitting in a church uh, today, but, but also those who are outside the church and how the Bible talks about the church. And that's really what this whole series is about. Um, we, now, I, I think those of us at our specific local church might have a better handle on this, but we still tend to talk, when we talk about church, we tend to talk about buildings. We tend to be thinking and describing programs. We'll often distinguish one church from another by worship style of music or style or content of preaching, length of a worship service, day of a worship service, dress code. It's, it's a lot that has to do with, with some things that, that I don't see as much in the Bible. Let me tell you what the Bible tends to, um, when, when they, when, when it talks about the church. It's a little bit different. Almost all references are natural, living, and dynamic word pictures. Let me just throw out a couple. When the Bible talks about the church, and then Jesus will refer also to the kingdom of God. Here are a handful. The body, the bride, branches, field of wheat, mustard seed, the family, the flock, leaven. Now, even when the Bible does use a building picture of the church uh, in 1 Peter 2.5, um, he's quick to add that we are living stones that build up this building. So even when it goes the building route, talking about a church, it's talking about living stones, living people who make up the church. This series, www.church.com, we're just looking at what does it mean to be the church? How are we supposed to live this life that we've been given as Christians? And last week we looked at www.church.com, and com stood for community or family. 
And this week, we're looking at www.church.org. And the .org, in this case, for our purposes, stands for organism or organic. And what I want to do is think about and draw out from the scriptures this ongoing and pervasive picture that the church is a living organism. And then some of the implications for that for us as well. The picture you're looking at is a tree called General Sherman. You know if you're naming trees, you're either really loopy or it's a really special tree. This tree, um, at 275 feet tall and evidently over 4 million pounds, I don't know how you weigh a tree like this. Uh, it's a little embarrassing to get on a scale when you're that much, I think, but somehow they figured that out. I think they're guesstimating. But it is the biggest living organism in the world that we know of. I always want to categorize that we know of because they're always discovering more, right? And in our pride, we always make these bold assertions about what is and isn't, and then they discover something new and go, oops, we were wrong. So that we know of, this is the biggest living organism on planet Earth. Here's the cool thing. It's four hours away. Four hours away. We could go drive there and check it out 30 miles from Hume Lake, where a lot of our kids go all the time. Right there in this national forest uh, being preserved, you can go and check out this thing. I bring this up because as awesome as it is to look at man-made things and what people can do and Christmas time, you know, it's the, it's the gadget time. All the new gadgets get introduced. There's a giant uh, electronic show going on right now and everyone's checking out what man can do with things. It's still marvelous to go and check out creative, living things and to marvel at them. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you know? I mean, just don't try to give the Jesus answer. Just tell me what you know about this sort of thing. But how can you tell if something is alive or not? What are some of the things you would look for if something's alive or not? What do you got? Movement. Yes. What else? Growth. Okay. Yeah. What else? Decay. Color. Breath. Keep thinking. Those are the surface ones. There's more. Smell. Yeah. Yeah. Cologne can hide a lot, but uh, not decay. All right, what else? Pulse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, whether it eats or not? Yeah, yeah. So we're starting to, you know, you start thinking about this, and you go, well, you know, are we talking about a person? Are we talking about an animal or a, a creature of some sort? Is it plant life, right? If it's plant life, is it bearing fruit? Does it have flowers on it? Is it wilting or is it vibrant? Uh, speech? Is it talking or not? If something is talking, you're pretty convinced it's alive, right? That there's there's not a dead person talking. Um, so so we kind of look at these things and, and we can kind of figure things out. We learned from our series just recently, a little epistle of James near the end of your Bible, that faith can be living or dead. It can be described that way. And there there's some clear markers to that as to whether your faith is living or dead. Churches sometimes are called dead or alive. In fact, sometimes people will describe their church as, man, I used to go to this really dead church. That's a really common thing for Christians to kind of throw out. Or, our church is so alive, right? And so we talk this way. Revelation 3.1 says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write these words, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So sometimes we can even be fooled by whether something is alive or dead. Now let me just ask you a question. What are your thoughts on this plant, whether it's alive or dead? Any guesses? How many think it's alive? Raise your hand. How many think it's dead? Now here's one of the things. You don't, you don't get to be up close and personal to this plant, so you can't really, you know, touch it and stuff. Just doing what I'm doing right now, you'd be able to tell right now that this is a fake plant. Because you could feel it. You could, you could bend it 
and it, and it bends and it stays there and it doesn't break off, right? It's not fragile. Now, something about something that's fake, um, it's really convenient to have a fake plant. Let me tell you what happened this year. Um, if you're, if you pastor at a small church, what happens is you preach on Sunday mornings and then you also see, um, live poinsettias at Osh and think, wouldn't that be nice for our church this Christmas season to go live instead of fake? And so you buy said live plants and you bring them. And then because you pastor at a small church, by about Wednesday, they're dying inside the sanctuary after the first Sunday that you use them. So now you're on your cell phone looking and figuring out on Wikipedia, how do you care for poinsettias? So then you realize, wow, they need sunlight, but it can't be too hot, can't be too cold. Guess what? We're going fake every year from here on out. I'm just telling you that right now. They lasted up until Christmas Eve. Uh, and then I, I think I think we went fake after that. Where's Laura? Laura's the one that helped me with that. But but here's the thing with with these you pull them out of storage, you blow on them, they dust off super super easy. They're really convenient and they kind of fake people out, right? Think about the church. Churches sometimes can have a reputation of looking really good. Some of you have gone to churches and the first few weeks you're like, right on, I found a new church home. Man, there's there's just such an authenticity there, and there's an excellence to what goes on, and I just sense a real community there. Have you ever been in that situation and then marched further on down the truth down down the road and realized, wow, what I thought was true wasn't true at all? Some of you have actually dated. When you date people, this is the same process, right? You get into that relationship; it's really hunky dory for a while. Then you realize, wow, there's a real person there, and it's a lot less convenient. Now, is is live Worth it. Absolutely. Take a kid or a baby doll. Take a, a puppy or a stuffed animal, right? Inconvenient, messy, a lot of work, and totally worth it. So we're gonna, we're gonna dive into some of this and, and think about it. What I wanna do this morning is not just look at what an alive church is, but actually challenge the way that we all think about and even talk about church. Part of our problem in reaching the world with the good news of Christ is that we tend to think that church is what happens in and around this building instead of in and around and through what believers, where believers go all through the rest of their week, including this morning. So not diminishing what goes on here this morning, but, but not limiting to what goes on here this morning. All right, you've got a handout this morning, and here's where we're going really quickly. We're going to start with the head, because the head's the most important. We're going to look, we're going to take one of these living metaphors, word pictures, and go with body, because body is used all throughout Scripture, that the church is the body of Christ. We're going to look at the head, we're going to look at the body, and then we're just going to talk about some of the implications, um, kind of the, 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 the so what of it. So, so what about church growth? How should we think about that? What about church life? How should that be? So let's talk about the, the, the head for a second. One of the most Christ-honoring passages in all of Scripture is found in Colossians 1. You can turn there if you want. I know you're in 1 Corinthians 12, but but I put it on the screen, and and the first line is the one I really want you to get. Listen in. I'm going to read the rest of it. Colossians 1.18, and he, meaning Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything, that in everything, he might be preeminent or first place. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled to in his body of flesh by his death, 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. That's good news. That's, that's a little short, succinct paragraph that packs a ton in about who Jesus is, what he came to accomplish, and who we are in him, now that we've been reconciled. As the head, Jesus is first place in everything. That means that every worship service that we do, every children's program that we run, every outreach program that we run, we want to do it through this filter. Is Jesus being exalted? Is Jesus being honored? Is this what Jesus would want done with us? That's our grid. It's pretty simple. We talk about that often as a staff and as a leadership team, as community group leaders in our prayers. We constantly bring this forward. Is Jesus first place in our worship services? If not, it's got to go. It's got to change. We've got to tweak it that Christ might be preeminent. As head, it means that Jesus is the only Savior of the church. When, not if, when we go through turmoil, Living organisms rise and fall. Living organisms have, some of you are sick today. Some of you aren't sick today. When we go through difficulty, when we're in a fight, when we have struggles, I'll tell you what is not going to lead us and save us as a church. It won't be me. Don't put your hope in me. Don't put your hope in our great leaders. Don't put your hope in our systems that we've developed. Don't put our hope in this building Don't put our hope in the fact that we've been a church for a long time or we're a really short-time church, so we've got it figured out. Whatever we put our hope in, that's the wrong hope, unless it's in the Savior of the church. And there's only one of those. It's Jesus. As the head, not only is he the Savior of the church, he is the only one who has claim and authority on the church. So once again, even as we talk about church, we don't want to promote and think through uh Church history primarily, think through what we've dreamt up as church leaders and a church body here at NBC. Look to Jesus and say, what does Jesus say as the authority on his body we ought to be doing as a church? And that's what we want to to ruthlessly look at. All right, so if that's the head, what does it mean that the church is the body of Jesus? The short answer, I don't know. I mean, there is a giant mystery to that, isn't there? We're going to talk about some things. The Bible reveals things, but that's a giant, lofty idea that we are the body of Christ. So we're going to, we're going to wade into it. We're going to read some scripture. I pray for the Holy Spirit's illumination on our minds to be able to think through this. But let's remember that there's a giant mystery to all of this. There's a marvelous mystery to all this. Let's look at the body. First Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Follow along with me. For just as the body is one, talking about our physical bodies, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. 
couple more verses. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker and are, are indispensable, and on those part, parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the, that, that the members may have the same care for one another. Let me stop there. Do you see what I mean? I have no idea what this means. Just kidding. Um, as you read this, you're like, members a lot, this one, that, what are you even talking about? If, if you start to read, if, if you read this a couple of times, this is one of Paul's just famous, like, rambling sentences that he would have flunked out of, like, fifth grade English, you know, because uh, he didn't speak English. But um, but as you read this a couple of times, you start to get the picture. It's, it's actually really simple, and it's actually really profound, because every, t- every one of us gets this instinctively, because we all have a body. And so comparing something mystical to the body, every, every kind of picture of the church breaks down at some point. We're not really a body, but that's a good metaphor. It's a good word picture to kind of get us thinking about different things, about something somewhat uh, mystical as the body of Christ. Let me, let me roll out a, a, a couple of things for us, and you can jot them down if you'd like. First of all, one of the big ideas is this, that as the body of Christ, uh, we function as a unit. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of, of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. All the members belong to one body. So we function as a unit. We move together. We think together. We stay together. 14, verse 14 pulls out the fact that there are many members. Verses 13 through 20, uh, 20 talk about the variety. There's variety in function of your members of your body, right? So it is with the body of Christ. There's not only a variety in the function that we perform here as a church body, but there's also variety in the prominence given to the church. I clearly, right now, by standing where I'm standing, am a prominent part of the church right now on this given moment. Someone who's serving that you didn't see this morning, that was in at the same time that I was, was two walls over accomplishing things and doing things and and, and in their function that you don't ever know. Many of you don't know what goes on. But there they are, performing functions, doing things, so that the church can move forward and serve the body. So there's variety in function. There's variety in prominence. The scriptures lay out that both in our bodies and the church body, there's variety of arrangement. Some get prominence, some are hidden. But all serve the head for the good of the whole. Finally, all the other... uh of, of, of all these parts, I, I, I the scriptures pull out this idea, that there are unpresentable parts of the body and that they actually get greater uh, honor. Here's something interesting. I don't know how many of you have ever been complimented on your liver. Hey, nice kidneys. You know, people don't compliment your kidneys, but you really need your kidneys, right? And and you have these different parts of your body that, that are that are totally unseen, but they are they are most essential. Many people will compliment you on your flowing locks, right? And they'd say, wow, you have such great hair. You know, what product do you use or whatever it is? But you could shave those puppies off and you'd be just fine. You'd go on and eat and live and talk and run. You could do everything. You yank out your kidneys, you're in trouble, right? Here's the other picture with this whole idea of functioning as a unit. 
If your super white straight teeth ever said to your blood, look, blood, no one likes you. I mean, people throw up at the sight of you. They don't even want to see you. They run from you. They pass out when they see you. I'm out of here. We're separating, right? It's just ludicrous. We, we, we see that picture, and, and yet in the church, that's exactly what can go on. Start looking through church history sometimes. For most of you, that's kind of boring. That sounds really boring. But, but as you start to look at church history, some of the factions that we have aren't theological in nature. Many of them are white teeth saying to the blood, I don't need you anymore. I'm, I've got a book contract. Do you know who I am? I'm super straight and white, and I get compliments all the time. And the blood says, man, you don't even know what's up. I'm out of here then. And there's all these splits that kind of go on within the body of Christ. Self-destructing. All right, not only that, but the body belongs to each other. Look at verse uh, 26 of, of chapter 12. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice. Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually, you're members of it. The Bible's not trying to separate out your individuality. Or, or your distinct uniqueness. In fact, it's actually celebrating that, but saying it all comes together by a grand and master design. Ephesians 4.4 4 says, there is one body and one spirit. You ever bite your lip? You ever bite your lip? You, you ever be hammering something and you nail your, your, your finger instead of the nail? Some of the guys are like, I don't want to admit it, but yeah, that's me. Now, when you bite your lip, in retaliation... Your fist doesn't punch you in the teeth and say, what are you doing, teeth? That's ludicrous, right? One part of the body hurts. If anything, the, the, the hand's going to kind of cradle the mouth and mm, it can't do anything for it. But, but your, your, your hand is there to help it. If, if you nail your finger, you know, the other hand doesn't go, ow, boom, and nail it back. I mean, just the next time you do that, then we can talk about, you know, retaliating against other parts of the Christian. But, but until that goes on, just, just have a sense that your head that holds the whole body together would say that's absolutely ludicrous to now bite and devour one another just because someone let the other one down. Let me, let me just prep you for this. Some of you are brand new in the last couple months. You're going to have your lip bitten at this church. You're going to have someone who's actually trying to accomplish good while you're holding the nail come down with the full force of a hammer and smash your thumb. You know what you're going to, your reflex is going to want to do? Give me that hammer. It's not to bless them in the hammer love. It's, it's to hit them back. That's going to be your flood. That's going to be your instinct. Here's the picture. Remember that as a church, remember that as a body, your own body malfunctions sometimes. To retaliate only hurts you. We don't retaliate usually by hitting each other with hammers, but man, we do a ton of damage with this little thing right here. A whole forest, remember James says, is set on fire by a tiny little spark, so it can be with words. Be careful, little fingers, what you type. Be careful, little thumbs, what you text to one another. So let's not retaliate. We belong to each other. If you've ever won a race, your thumb isn't over here pouting because they didn't do good in the race and the feet get all the glory. But that's the picture. That happens all the time in the body, in the church. Let me give you a couple of positive examples where I see some great things going on. Because not only do we belong to one another, but we, this local church, belongs to the Church of San Jose, which, which belongs to the capital C church, meaning those who are found in Christ. So some of you could travel right now to Florida and all of a sudden find brothers and sisters in Christ, and we belong to them. Let me give you a couple of positive examples. Wednesday night, many of you showed up to this compelled training in South San Jose. We're, we're, we're partnering with a few other churches and just to be down there and get to be 
um, understanding that we belong to each other. I care obsess of Steve Weisenberger and Bernal Church. I pray for them. I care that they are healthy. I care that they are protected. I care that they grow. I care about Steve's life as a pastor. I can say that about all kinds of churches around because I'm in relationship with them because I belong to them. When they get a victory, when someone is led to Christ through their ministry, you know who celebrates? We do through me. Sometimes I share that with you. Sometimes I don't. But we celebrate that. That's our victory. When they're hurt and a pastor falls to morality or money or whatever it might be, that hurts me. That hurts us. We don't look at them and say, well, see, I knew something was up with that church. They were always awful, but anyways, that's what we tend to do, isn't it? Instead of saying, man, that hurts. My thumb is throbbing, and I'm not even the thumb, but I'm a part of that body. Compelled training is something that we are saying, man, it's important because we belong to each other to be pulling in the same direction and resourcing one another. Our winter camps this year for middle school and high school are intentionally being done by Ben and his leadership team with other churches. In preparation for that, there have been several youth events, worship nights, game nights, things that have said, let's get some of those churches together, even in advance of doing winter camp, so we don't hit winter camp cold turkey, to understand that there are other students at Dartmouth, that there are other students at Pioneer and Lee and Westmont that, that are Christians. And so let's let's realize that we belong to each other. Let's lose this little fanaticism about our little name brand and how we're doing church because we're a body. We belong to one another. So there's a lot of positive things. Love, Inc. is that way. There's a brand-new college ministry about four months old that our college students are a part of called Insight where about eight or nine churches are coming together for college students up at Church on the Hill. And it's an awesome thing to, to see um, God doing this amongst the churches. All right, here's another one. As the body of Christ, the body of Christ relishes the knowledge that Christ nourishes and cherishes us. Ephesians 5.29, I was at a wedding yesterday, this passage was brought up. Ephesians 5.29 is talking about the bride and the groom in the same way that Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. And so it kind of ping-pongs back and forth. It's an amazing uh, passage of scripture. And it talks about, about some different things. And here's what it says in verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. You ought to relish in that knowledge. You ought to soak in that. You ought to realize in the hard times. You ought to realize in the great times. You know who's nourishing us right now? You know who's cherishing us? It's Christ. He's caring for his body. The word nourish means that it means that we're supplied with all that is necessary for health and strength and growth. It's not all that we want. There's a big difference, right? I mean, my kids want a lot of things that won't nourish them so they don't get it. But nourish means you're going to get everything that you need. I am going to see to it as the head that the body gets all she needs for health and strength and growth. So when we pray for things, when we long for things and we don't get it, we take by faith that the head knows better than the body. We say, God, we're going to keep praying for this, but if it's not in your will, you're not going to give it to us because that won't nourish us. Secondly, that we're cherished means we're held dear. We're nurtured tenderly. We're not just nurtured like a prisoner can be nurtured, right? A little farm animal will be chucked, you know, some meat once in a while. But instead, we're, we're cherished as, as beloved. Now, these are huge and lofty ideals of the church. I say ideals because we're not there yet. I, I read all of these as if they are fact. As the body of Christ, we do this. And then some of you are thinking of our opening word. Uh, wait a minute, there's a discrepancy here. I know we're supposed to to belong to each other, but do we really? I know that we're supposed to function as a unit, but do we really? 
So that, that discrepancy is, is, this, is this separation of where we always realize, wow, there's more grace needed, isn't there? Christ, there's, there's more for you to do in my life individually so that I function this way. So these are giant, lofty ideas kind of, kind of out there. What I want to do now, just the remainder of our time, is kind of bring it into some very practical implications for us. Because one of the things about the church, it's not just this mystical idea that we can't really get a handle on. It, it's, it's mysterious, and we'll never understand it all. But it's also real. It's tangible. Just like Christ isn't some mythical idea, he came in as a body and as an actual person. So there are historical things he said and did, and, and he walked on, on this earth. And so, and so it is with the, with the church. Here are some implications. First, about, about church growth. Matthew 16, 18, you don't need to type, uh, get there, but you can just write it down. Jesus says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's the first fill in the blank for, for that one. That the church is built by him and is his. I will build my church. Just in a tiny sentence, there's some great things that, that, that help us think through um, how we should function and think about church and talk about church. Our, our language should even center around that. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is in, is in blue jeans and boots going around building churches, because guess what? He's not talking about this structure. He is building his church. But he's not running around building buildings. Instead, he's running around building up this living organism that we're talking about. Jot this down, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. This just kind of shows that uh, with church growth, a lot of times um, our, our humanness tends to want to follow some dynamic leader. It's just built into us. The Israelites didn't have a king like all the other nations, remember that? And what did God say? God's instruction for them was this, I'm going to be your king. I am your king. And it's a king, unlike any king that's ever lived on earth. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kingdom that, that's established forever. Your king is sovereign over all of creation. And what do the people say? We don't want that kind of king. We want a king like Bob over here in the next nation over. He's a pretty cool guy. He's got a sweet crown. We want one of those. So God actually gives them a king. Kind of lets them go that route for a while. And it didn't go so hot. We tend to want to follow people. We, we, we tend to want to take our eyes off of Christ who, who alone purchased the, the, the church, who alone is building up and nourishing and cherishing his body. And we tend to want to put that on a person. I get this because what we want is we want someone we can see. We want to be able to shake their hand. We want to get their autograph. We want to get their book. We want to keep hearing from them. And, and so, so there's this kind of tension there. It's not new. 1 Corinthians 3, 4 says this. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? By the way, Paul's writing this. Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Paul, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. We don't have days that celebrate the person who planted the General Sherman tree seed, right? Or watered it. We marvel at the God who gives the growth. So not only is God building the church, but God 
causes the growth and alone deserves the glory. Ephesians 4.11, jot this one down. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Why? Here's what it answers. The very next verse, verse 12, says this. To prepare God's people for works of service. Catch this. So that the body of Christ may be built up. Look at me for a second. He gave all these gifts to the church. Some that are phenomenal at planting seed. Some that are incredible at watering and nurturing and coming along and tending to plants, spiritually speaking. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up. It's from Jesus for the good of the church. And then verse 13 talks about the goal of all this. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You talk about church growth with with many people, especially here in the West. People say, what's the goal of the church? Let me tell you what it's not. It's not monstrous size. In fact, when we see someone with, you know, biceps that are like pushing on their cheek, we think roid rage, right? Steroid. I mean, there's just, there's a problem. That's not natural or normal. We don't look at that and say, wow, that's just so great. I used to be fascinated by the Guinness's World Book of Record and the fattest person who ever lived. You know, there was the, the heaviest twins that rode these little mini motorbikes. Remember that picture? Some of you remember that. You're right around my same age. You know. We don't look at that and go, that's what I want to attain to. Monstrous size. I want to be gigantic. But church growth? A lot of times that's what we think. Unless you're growing a pumpkin for the county fair to get the most massive pumpkin, we don't look at that and go, that's normal and good. We don't want tomatoes that are bigger than our truck. You know, that's just, that's weird. That's not the norm, right? That's a side contest. So the goal is maturity, being complete, finishing well. I would say in a word, the goal is health, right? The goal is that we would be complete and that we would reach the end and that we would be healthy. Turn in your Bibles just for a second to Mark 4. In Mark 4, there's a, there's a little passage where, again, sprinkled all through the scriptures is Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. Sometimes specifically talking about the church but more often than not, talk about the kingdom of God. And in Mark 4, uh, starting in verse 26, it says this. Short little parable, story. Jesus talking, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces it by itself. First the blade, then the ear, than the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Primarily, what I want you to see with this is this, that God partners with us in the growth and health of his church. I don't know if you caught it, but what we have here is a clueless farmer who's asleep on the job. He's scattering seed. He doesn't really know how the mystery of the whole thing works. And he's sleeping on the job. And what's happening? God's causing growth. That gives hope for every seminary student right now. I don't feel adequate. I don't know if I can do this thing. The simple answer is, you're pretty clueless. 
You can study the physics of how a plant does things and how the nutrients get here and there. But guess what? You're powerless to make any of that happen. But isn't it cool that God's invited us in to partner with him in this whole deal? Isn't it freeing to know that we're partners with God in this whole thing? And he's just told us the gates of hell, the the most awesome power of evil known to man won't prevail against my church. This thing is going to succeed. That gives you hope in the second quarter when you're getting smashed. And you go, man, I don't know if we're going to win this thing. You press on and you keep going. The farmer cannot do what God must do, which is to cause growth and life and produce and a harvest. But catch this. God will not do what the farmer should do. So the farmer can't do what God must do, which is to cause the growth. But God won't do what the farmer has been instructed to do, which is to plant, which is to tend, which is to harvest. That's the partnership. That's even the partnership in our spiritual growth. Keep planting seeds to the Spirit, and you'll reap a harvest of righteousness, Galatians says. You keep planting your seeds to your own flesh, it's, it's a sure thing. The harvest that will come in a different season, you'll get away with it for a while, in a different season will be death. And you'll look back and go, nine months ago, why wasn't I planting different seeds? So it is with church growth. All right, here's the last thing about this, that mystery and wonder accompany the church. Here's what it means. Any book that you have that says seven steps to grow your church or your money back, don't buy that book. That's a stupid book. It really is. There's a lot of them out there. Doesn't mean we can't glean from things. Doesn't mean there aren't great leadership principles that I've gotten from non-Christians who've grown companies and thought through things and been strategic. There's a lot of great stuff with that. But there's mystery and wonder in growing a church. There's not that much mystery and wonder in building a car. In building a car, you draw up plans, you build the parts, you put it on an assembly line, and you just build the thing. You add this to this to this, and in X amount of time, you'll get this every time. There's a tiny little variance of malfunction once in a great while, but that's it. It's not that way with making disciples, is it? You know this as disciples, that there's mystery and wonder to it. God, why is it that right now, when I am blowing it, when I can't seem to get anything right, when my prayer life feels stagnant as can be, why is it now that you're allowing me to affect the eternal destiny of a friend I've been praying for for years? And right now is when they're asking me deep questions and actually listening and responding and opening the scriptures with me. That seem weird. That's not how I would do it. I would say, you've been on a good track now for about six months. Now we're going to start giving you some people into your life so you can influence. So often it doesn't happen that way. There's mystery and wonder. Here's the, here's the reality. There are some very faithful pastors who are in ministries on the mission field right now. These are incredible people of God that I've known for a long time. And their ministry feels flat and stagnant. They're faithfully planting. They're faithfully watering. They they pray probably better than most of us in this room. And there's just not a ton of growth. Guess what? There are fakes and charlatans whose ministries are exploding right now. Exploding. I look at that and I go, "I, I can't figure that one out. All I know is that just like in the natural world, there's mystery and wonder to growth. All right, before we move on to church life, here's my closing thought on this. Healthy organisms grow and then reproduce. A healthy organism is growing, 
We want to be growing as a church, and then a healthy organism reproduces. I'll tell you what we're longing for here. We move to two services. Some of you go to this service, and you don't know what's happening in the second service. The second service is filling up, you guys. Someone was up here recently that isn't often up here for both services, and they, they turned to me. They, they, they kind of caught it. They said, wow, we're going to have to start looking at three services soon. I said, you know what? There's mystery and wonder to this thing. If God continues the way it is, you're absolutely right. Some of you are going to need to start being intentional about what service you come to as a service to other people who are new so we don't bog one down. Some of you are going to need to do some logistical things of jumping in and saying, there's got to be need here. Someone who was like a month old at our church, they said, there's got to be some need. You know, what can I do? And I gave, them a, I gave them a thing that was really huge to take off my plate, and it was just, here, go do this. They just did it. Some of you are going to need to very intentionally start parking in the back because you realize this little circle of parking spots around our building, that, that's just not enough for, for practically what's here right now. So I tell you that because healthy organizations and organisms grow but then reproduce. Here's not our goal at this church. We don't want to run seven weekend services. We don't want to build a seven-story building. Let's just keep going up, you know. We're not going to do a balcony in here. That's not the plan. So as we grow, we are looking right now. We're saying, Lord, if, if we continue to grow, praise God. Numbers do tell part of the story. They don't tell all the story. They tell part of the story. Every number is a person. That means people from our community that weren't being affected by the message of the gospel are being affected now. That's great. We want more of that. But as we start pushing services, here's what we're looking at. We're looking at, God, where would you open the door for us as a church to reproduce? So my question for us in this room, who are the next pastors? Who are the next worship leaders? Who are the next facility servants? Who are the next prayer warriors that go on around this church? Who are the next leadership trainers and strategic thinkers? Who are the next financers for the next phase of our church, whenever and wherever that may be? We don't want to grow to seven weekend services. We want to grow to a thing so healthy that we all, that I stand up here one day and say, guys, guess what? It's time to split. We're taking, we're taking 80 people. We're going to go start this church downtown or over across the way or whatever. We're going to go partner with another church that's been kind of fledgling. And everyone goes, yeah, makes tons of sense. We're on board. We're excited about that. Man, it'll be a bummer to see you go. But what a thrill. That's, that's what we're looking toward. So what that means is this, that, that we are to be growing people up. If you're in a ministry role right now, you've probably heard this from my lips, but I'll say it publicly. Be looking for a way to work yourself out of a job. Be looking for a way to bring someone else along that goes and does hospital visits with you. When you think, gee, I wonder if the church could use this, and you call up and there's a need, think about who you can call and bring along with you. That's what Jesus did. He just trained them on the way, in the midst of real life. As a youth pastor, I went almost nowhere by myself. I always had someone with me. If I was doing errands for a youth retreat, I had a kid with me. If I was going to go do a visit, I've taken visits to many of you with someone with me. That's the idea. That's the picture. All right, how about church life? How are we to be the church? Let me tell you this, that absent from the New Testament are detailed instructions and manuals on how the local church is supposed to function. In, in essence, what, what it does is, is the, the church is given some clear parameters. Think, think playground um, fence. It's great to see a, a, a perimeter fence at a playground because then what do the kids do? They just get to go run wild, right? Because they know where the fence is and they have all this freedom to move. 
So as a church, we're a bit like a playground. God's given us some very clear boundaries. You ever see someone climbing the fence? Man, you yank them back down. Otherwise, there's, there's parameters, but then there's all this freedom. It's not a dot-to-dot where we all come out manufactured looking the same. That's why a church you can worship at here or around the world will have some commonality to it. Christ is central. Christ is worship. The communion elements are uh, celebrated. The Bible's preached from. Prayer's a priority. Dependence on the Holy Spirit's there. But guess what? Almost everything else is fair game. So much stuff is fair game, which is kind of fun. Here's, Here's how we're doing it here. Some of you, this will be review and reminder. Some of it, some of you, it'll be, it'll be brand new. First of all, is that, is that we, we've been trying to keep things simple. Here's what it means. Characteristic of neighborhood Bible church is we don't have a ton of stuff going on. We actually have structured ourselves to remain unfettered by a bunch of program. And what that's allowed us to do is really focus on some things. When a pastor or teacher gets up here and says, you know, we should really be ministering to our neighbors and it dawns on you. How can I minister to someone whose name I don't even know? Wow, I bet that's a starting point. I bet I should get to know their name. And beyond their name, I should begin to build a relationship with them. We've decided we don't want to overprogram our church and have so much going on here that just reinforces the idea that the church is a building and a place and a program that we've actually stripped so much of that away. By doing so, here's, here's what a couple of things that not overprogramming has done. It means that leaders don't stagnate the creativity and the passion of the body. Aren't you glad that our church isn't all dependent on me and Ben and Kel and Jim and our brilliant ideas? It's not, because there's passion and creativity in this room alone that could blow the, the, the roof off this thing. By not over-programming, the great variety of the body is seen and developed. You ever have a cast on for a while and you don't use your right arm? What does your right forearm look like after that? A little piece of wilted celery, right? It's just gross. It's like, eee. You know what? We don't want a church body that's atrophied. It's not been in use, and so it just kind of shrivels up, and you're just a weak little celery Christian. Hey, could you help me move these chairs? I don't know if I can. I've got a wilted arm. You know, we don't want that. That's not what we want. So by not over-programming from top down, we're, we're, we're trying to prevent that. Thirdly, participation and ownership are heightened when the body functions as the body. A clear picture of the church as a living organism is seen when we realize we had some church, some of us had some church Saturday morning at Starbucks just talking about how reading the Bible went this last year. So cool to just be around a table and go, man, we're just having some church right here. This is part of church right here. So cool. Finally, Jesus, the head, receives glory as the whole community is contributing to the mission. So in short, the body is built up and disciples are being made. Number two is that we're focused. Uh, let me just let me just give you something to draw if you would like. This is the play button that we talk about a lot here. It's a visual representation of kind of the purpose and the path of disciple making at, at Neighborhood Bible Church. This little play button triangle, you see this everywhere in our culture. It's common. It's kind of mundane. You could look right past it. And yet great things happen when by faith you push play, Right? Things you don't understand. On your little phone, you see the triangle and you hit play. All of a sudden, your ears are just filled with, with some music. You don't know the inner workings of all of that, but it, but it goes on. Green means go. That's all built into our play button. Here's what it looks like. We believe that the maturing disciple is growing. That means it's uneven and messy sometimes, but they're growing. And passionately involved in these three areas. Worship, a loving, deepening relationship with God. Community, 
committed and loving relationship with the family of God, or in this case today, a member of the one body, the church. And finally, number three, serving and sharing with other people. The outflow of being in right relationship with God and being a part of a body is naturally to share, is naturally to produce good works. Why did Jesus give all these gifts to the body? To build it up for good works of service. That's the natural health outflow. All right, we're moving on. I hope you write fast. Number three is this. What will characterize our church as a living organism instead of just a manufactured product, man-made product, is that it will be uneven and messy in our progress. Right now, our home has two two two-year-olds and a puppy that are potty training. Okay? Messy, uneven progress. I'm dishing out M&Ms and liver treats, and I'm trying not to get them confused, basically, (laughs) is what's happening. We celebrate poo-poo on the potty all the time. I mean, touchdown dance, victory dance. We're really hyped up on that right now. This is so much harder than a baby doll that does the cute little, remember the ones that came out that beat in the little thing and, you know, bag. That's neat and clean, but it's fake, right? So much more rewarding, so much harder, clearly so much more messy. There are days where you just go, man, is this really worth it? Give me the poinsettia. Give me the fake plant. I want to just toss this thing in a closet for a while and bring it out when when I want to look at a plant. So much more rewarding. You get this if you love animals and like your kids. No, I'm kidding. Love your kids. (laughs) Kidding. So it is with the church. So here's the picture. Let's embrace this. Let's just enjoy it. When when one of your family members hits you on the thumb with you know with with a nail, bite your tongue first of all, right? So you don't give the immediate response, and even try to enjoy that moment. Even try to just enjoy this whole ride with things. Because it's because it's real, it's life. Alright. Finally is this that wonder and mystery are welcomed here. As we talk about church life, catch this. As we talk about church life, not is the growth, it's not just a static growth chart. Where if you put in this time and this, you know, this amount of effort, you will get growth like this. That is not real life at all. So not only is it is it is it messy. But wonder and mystery are welcomed here. And when I say wonder and mystery are welcomed here, I'm not primarily talking about here, this building. I'm talking about it's welcomed among us. Jesus gave this profound truth. Listen to it. Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That means that wonder and mystery happens in the carpool lanes as much as it does in bowling lanes, right? And so you're in the auto shop or you're in the body shop, or you're in the coffee shop. Wonder and mystery can go on in these different settings. So as you, I think the church is best not in two to three hundreds or two to three thousands. As impressive as that all looks, it's best when it's in twos and threes. Just going and ministering. And I have story after story. As I look in the faces of people in this room, it's so cool. Story after story of examples I could give from our community. If you don't know that's going on, join a community group. Get into this thing. It's incredible. I close with this. Many times people come and they ask me as a pastor, so how is your church doing? It's one of the hardest questions I have to answer. I know it sounds easy and simple on the surface. But people want to know, sometimes because they've been praying about our church or they know it's been going on or whatever else. 
The, the, the reason I wrestle is where do I start? I know what most people want. Most want, how are the numbers? Are you growing? And are you personally gratified in it? Are you enjoying ministry? That's, in a nutshell, what I think a lot of people are fishing for with that. But as I start to formulate an answer, here, here's what comes to my mind. And maybe we would all do well to answer this way with it, because we can all feel that same way. How's your church going? And you might rattle off some things. Oh, it's great because of X, Y, and Z. And I like it. It's an added bonus. But let me give you a different way to think about answering this question. Okay, here it is. First of all, it's not my church. It's his church. I don't care if you're an usher, a parking lot attendant, a typer, a preacher. It's not our church. It's his church. They don't need to beat someone over the head and give them a theological lesson at that point. But that's a real clear reality to talk about and think and let that invade our language. Here's the second thing. How is it doing is a complex question and takes a really long time to answer. You ask me how my family is, you might want to just know, are they healthy and alive or whatever? To which I would say, they're fine. But if you really want to know, it's going to take some time to, to start to talk about that. So how's our church doing? Man, let me tell you about this going on and that going on. Let me tell you that there are pockets of glory and power of God on display that you wouldn't believe and there are pockets of pain and temptation that are going on that are that we're in a raging dogfight with. Some believers are soaring right now in our church as a part of our body, and some believers are running headlong from God toward temptation and their own destruction. So how's our church doing? How much time do you have? That's, that's my question back to someone. Finally, this. Well, let me just let me just say this. Uh, in, in a word, if someone asks you how your church is going, if someone asks me how our church is going, here's what I would say. It's alive. And if they want to press further into that, we'll, we'll talk about pockets of life and signs of life and all the different things going on. But it's a good thing to know. We, as a living organism, the body of Christ, are alive. Let me pray. God, thank you for communicating to us your great plan for the church. God, I pray that we would begin to grasp and grapple with all that we don't understand. That there's so much more to what we're doing here, God, than, than most of us catch on any given week and throughout the week. Father, I pray that you would help me and others uncomplicate church for us and yet at the same time by your spirit's power God reveal the majesty and mystery to it that there's so much more to it God even now as we celebrate you as we honor and worship you with our offering with our lips and our song and our hearts stance we ask that you, Jesus, the head of the church, the savior of the church, the nourisher of this church, the one that cherishes this church, would be the only one that receives the glory. We thank you. We're left speechless before you when we stop and ponder. And all God's people said, Amen.